Book nine shows us the dramatic transformation of Dimitri as he willingly embraces suffering and holds himself to the high standards of the gospel, while he is also held to the more prosaic standards of the criminal justice system. Dimitri has a moment of conversion, a moment in which he turns away from the seemingly perpetual torment between Sodom and Madonna and sets his face towards suffering and towards Grushenka. Of course, we know that Dimitri is a man of wild resolution and impetuous action. Will this conversion endure, we wonder? In his focus on conversion, Dostoevsky joins the great Christian authors like Augustine and Dante, who give to their own lives and their stories the narrative shape of Christianity. Augustine and Dante wander and come home, drawn by the gracious intervention of God. Just Christianity, of course, generally is the story of man wandering from God and ultimately returning to him through God's intervention in, in human history. Like Augustine, looking back at his life and seeing God's hand directing him, we actually see Dimitri right, looking back in that moment after the ellipses, the mysterious ellipses, right, he looks back and he realizes that God was protecting him all along, despite his satanic transgressions. Brothers K is a novel of conversions, a novel that explores the desire for conversion and the grammar of conversion. We see Dimitri longing to be reborn, longing for resurrection, unsure how that will actually come about, right? optimistically believing that a change of place is all one needs in order for conversion uh, to happen. And of course, in addition to Dimitri's desire for conversion and, and the conversion that we see take place in him in book nine, we also hear about Zosima's conversion. His conversion from the wild and wicked young officer to the Right, the pious and and loving and loving monk. Zosima's conversion and really his entire biography has a really Augustinian quality as he looks back to his past, as he looks back, looks back over his life, he sees God's provincial, providential ordering of it of it all. We also see Alyosha's conversion from a weak youth to a strong fighter through the love that Grushenka shows him and through his dream of the wedding of Cana. I think in book 10, we're seeing some of the fruits of Alyosha's conversion as he begins his work in the world, the work that Zosima sent him to do. And we also are seeing the conversion of young Kolya under the influence of the converted Alyosha. Conversions beget conversions. In so many novels, there's this central focus on, on one figure's growth and development, the one figure's conversion story. Brothers K gives us multiple conversions, uh, pointing to the, the manifoldness of this, of this novel. Of this novel. Uh, it's, it's such a rich and complicated story, even though we are told that Alyosha is the hero. Uh, it's by no means really exclusively focused in on him. Uh, so we see conversion, conversion leading to other conversions. Now, book 10 takes place two months after the dramatic and seemingly climactic events of book nine. But instead of following Dimitri, Dostoevsky introduces an entirely new character, Kolya, the almost 14-year-old schoolboy. 
He's very concerned that Alyosha knows his precise age because he is not a little kid. He only plays with those little kids. It's a courtesy to them, not because he himself actually wants to play with them. So at first, I think this, this book seems like a major detour. Even the narrator's tone changes. There's a clarity and briskness to the style, at least in the opening chapters of the book, that's reminiscent of the opening chapters of the novel. But in fact, children have been a persistent theme throughout this work. We begin with the childhoods of the three, possibly four, Karamazov brothers. Zosima reflects on the importance of childhood memories and urges underpaid priests to read scripture to children one evening a week. He says, in language that echoes the epitaph, the epigraph, uh, quote, only a little, a tiny seed is needed. Let him cast it into the soul of a simple man and it will not die. It will live in his soul all his life. Dimitri's dream involves the suffering of children. He sees the wee one hungry and cold. The suffering of children has been a major concern in the novel. It's a novel in which the murder of a father of the moral center uh, of, of, the, of a family is the central focus. Uh, so of course, right, children are, are essential. And Concern and interest with childhood is a concern that is particularly important to the novel as a whole genre. The novel is often interested in the way that one's childhood shapes one's adulthood. Think of the space that Flaubert devotes to Charles and Emma's childhood education. How does what happened in what in, in one's youth contribute to the making of one's of one's adulthood? It is, is a central question that novels frequently ask. So I think really that this book is not a digression from the main action, but the culmination of a major concern for Dostoevsky as children become the main focus and the conversion of children become uh, come to the forefront. We see Alyosha, the converted Alyosha, going out into the world to children not as a priest, but as a layman, not in a cassock, but in a finely tailored coat and round hat. And he's not reading scripture, but instead encouraging the young boys to visit Elusha, Captain's son, and make restitution. In some sense, I think this is an answer to Yvonne. It's not a logical philosophical explanation for why children suffer, but an alternative at least to Yvonne's incessant brooding of her child abuse. Go out and love children, be with them in their suffering, Become a shining example that they can remember in the future. Contribute to their conversion. That's the answer to Yvonne. But why spend so much time on a child we haven't met? Why not focus on Ilyusha, Captain Snigiryov's son? Why Kolya? Why, why this child? This child who is basically a young Bazarov from Fathers and Children. And this is Bazarov uh, before the events of Fathers and Children, before he goes off to university. I think that Kolya's disdain for doctors and medicine is perhaps a nod to Turgenev. If you remember, that Bazarov plans to be a doctor. So why, why, why this child, why Kolya? I think that Troy has something to do with this. Who founded Troy? This keeps coming up in book 10. Kolya's knowledge of the answer to this question gives him an elevated status amongst his friends and even superiority over his teacher, uh, at least in the eyes of his schoolmates. 
actually really sympathize with the teacher who, due to historical complexity, cannot give a straightforward answer to the question of who founded Troy, but, quote, only a general answer about peoples, their movements and migrations, about the remoteness of times, about fable telling, but who had precisely founded Troy, that is, precisely which persons he couldn't say. Yet, precisely because, actual fact, we don't know. Uh, the last time I read Brothers K, I was a graduate student, and this passage didn't really stand out to me. Uh, but now, as as a, as a teacher, it, it does. The, the teacher understands the complexity of of attempting to answer this question, but articulating that complexity makes him sound utterly ignorant. And to the schoolboys, this proves Colia's superiority. Colia has the knowledge. Uh, he has the book, the word that has informed him who, in fact, has actually founded Troy. Uh, later, when another boy has discovered right, this sacred and Gnostic knowledge about the founding of Troy, Colia, in an attempt to maintain his superiority, asks, quote, And in what sense did they found it? What generally is meant by the founding of a city or state? He says, Quote, if one is to speak of such historical events as the founding of a nation, one must first know what it means. Hoya here is defending his elevated position by intellectually belittling another. But I think there's a genuine question behind his insecure and haughty defensiveness. What does it mean to found a city or a state? Kolya disdains what he calls old wives' tales and even world history and only trust natural science and mathematics. He himself has the attributes of a founder. He is commanding, intelligent, resourceful, confident, and audacious. He lies down on railroad tracks as a train passes over him, though of course we learn he does faint. She confesses to his mother later. And he certainly leads the other schoolboys, the two little children who live with him, and is a dog. He also leads the peasant to roll the cart over the goose. This kid has a lot of potential, a lot of potential to be a kind of founder, not necessarily the founder of, of a city, but, but some kind of dynamic leadership role we see in Colia. And so I think it's really fitting that we have this, this mention of Troy and this concern about what does it mean to found. But Colia's potential to be a founder has not been directed rightly. I've already mentioned the goose, right? Think about his mistreatment of the goose, about mistreatment of animals, which is a really big deal, especially given Zosima's admonishment. Quote, love the animals. God gave them the rudiments of thoughts and an untroubled joy. Do not trouble it. Do not torment them. Do not take their joy from them. Do not go against God's purpose. Olya has not loved the goose. What kind of founder will he be is very much up for debate. A goose killer? One influenced by the cynical and godless Rakuten? Did you notice Kolia has been under the influence of, of Rakuten, uh, who's this um, something right of a minor character, and, and yet has this really negative influence on, uh, on the young right, on children. Will Koya be a socialist? Will he follow the atheistic Voltaire? Will he grow up to be one who believes that God is just a useful idea, uh, that Christ would have joined the revolutionaries if he had been alive? One who thinks that women are subordinate creatures who must obey. 
Will he, out of his deep fear that everyone is laughing at him, quote, destroy the whole order of things? Or will he be a founder who is shaped by Alyosha? To put it in stark terms, will he follow the path of Ivan or the path of Zosima? past that keeps, we keep seeing being laid out, really, I think, in front of so many of the characters in this novel. And of course, for Dostoevsky, this is no lighthearted matter, no lighthearted choice. It's a spiritual battle for the future, concentrated in the person of Kolya. The spiritual dimension of this battle becomes explicit in his conversation with Alyosha, in which he confesses his fear of being ridiculous. This fear of being ridiculous stems from a fear of not being like everyone else. Alyosha responds to this fear rather dramatically. Quote, the devil has incarnated himself in this vanity and crept into a whole generation, precisely the devil. There is something devilish about the consuming fear of appearing, of appearing ridiculous, a fear that prevents people from honest confession. That confession of one's guilt, that is at the beginning of active love, now, Alyosha here sounds a little like Father Fairpont, who sees devils everywhere every time he enters a room. Right? The devil. And in fact, devils keep appearing in this novel. Dimitri thinks that the devil must have killed his father, and he mentions the devil constantly during his interrogation. But Alyosha's sense of the devil is not literal in the Father Fairpont way. Right? Fairpont thinks that the threat is the physical appearance of devils in physical realms. That's the great spiritual battle. Alyosha realizes that the work of the devil is psychological. It is in the ideas and temperament of the age. The devil lurks not in cells, but in philosophies. Father Fairpont is so consumed by the flashiness of a physical battle that he is blind to the subtle battle raging all around him. The battle that Zosima is fighting, the battle against the isolation of the age. Here, I think we see Dostoevsky's modernism. He doesn't live in an enchanted cosmos in which spiritual beings inhabit places, or at, at least uh, right, a cosmos in which that is the, that's the primary threat. Instead, he lives in the disenchanted cosmos in which evil takes the form of ideas. So the novel shows this novel in particular, shows the spiritual dimensions of human life, but not in a literal, old-fashioned, uh, enchanted cosmos, Father Farapont way. There's really this clash uh, between Farapont and Zosima, right? Farapont and Alyosha with respect to how spiritual warfare, uh, what spiritual warfare looks like. In response to Kolya's confession, Alyosha tells him, quote, you ought not to be like everyone else. And in fact, you're not like everyone else. You weren't ashamed just now to confess bad and even ridiculous things about yourself. Who would confess such things nowadays? No one. And people have even stopped feeling any need for self-judgment. So do not be like everyone else, even if you are the only one left who is not like that still. Do not be like that. So this is Alyosha's response to the attack of the devil. The attack of the devil is to uh, instill a vanity uh, in, in the whole generation, this vanity about being uh, different from other people and uh, 
this unwillingness to judge oneself, to accuse oneself, I think to see guilt in oneself. And his response is to tell Kolya not to be like everyone else. So what's happening here in this encounter between Lord Alyosha and Kolya? Is Alyosha just telling Kolya to be his own special self? Don't follow the crowd, be your own person. I don't think so. Remember the author's note at the beginning in which we learn that Alyosha is, quote, a strange man, even an odd man. Man, excuse me, even an odd one. Though he's an odd one because he, quote, bears within himself the heart of the whole. While the other people of his epoch have all for some reason been torn away from it for a time by some kind of flooding wind. I think Alyosha is here encouraging Kolya to not be like others because all of those others have been turned have been torn away from the heart of the whole. Alyosha wants Kolya to resist the intellectual fads around him and to hold fast to the center, even if that means not being like everybody else. Alyosha is particularly optimistic about Kolya's ability to confess bad and ridiculous things, about his ability to judge himself. After all, it is self-judgment that allows Dmitri to acknowledge his guilt, that allows Zosima to recognize that each is responsible for each, that allows Mikhail to find freedom. So I think here, Kolya's capacity for self-judgment suggests that he will be a founder in the Alyosha vein, a founder who will not false way to the devilish ways of everyone else, but will hold fast to the whole of things. So Kolya's confession here is part of his conversion. And so too is love a part of his conversion. As Alyosha and Kolya talk, Kolya declares, quote, our talk is something like a declaration of love. And when Alyosha later orders Kolya to stop taunting the fancy doctor who has come to see Alyosha, the young boys say, the young boy says, quote, Leech, there is only one person in the whole world who can tell Nikolai Persochkin what to do. This is the man. I obey him. Meaning, of course, Alyosha. I find the love between Alyosha and Kolya far more moving than the one between Alyosha and Lise. It reminds me of the love that Alyosha and Grushenka feel for each other and for the love that Zosima talks about, talks about when he says, quote, and if there are two people, if there are two of you who come together thus, there is already a whole world, a world of living love. This might be the true story for Alyosha, the true love story, that is, the love story with the young man who will obey him as Alyosha obeyed Zosima. We see Alyosha behaving like Zosima when he predicts Kolya's future unhappiness in a manner reminiscent of Zosima's bow before Dmitri's future suffering. So I think Kolya's ability to judge himself and his love for Alyosha suggests the kind of founder he will be. Of course, we don't really know what that will look like in any specific way. We just have some hope for the future, if the future it is going to be shaped by a founder who loves Alyosha. Now, while Dostoevsky gives us a child who promises to be some kind of founder and experiences some kind of Alyoshian and Zosimian conversion, Dostoevsky also in this book returns to the pain of suffering children, 
Ilyusha, we learn, is dying. When the captain realizes that his son will not recover, he cries out, I don't want a nice boy. I don't want another boy. If I forget the old Jerusalem. Back in book six, Zosima thinks about the children that Job lost and the new ones that he received. Zosima declares that it was possible for Job to be just as happy with the new children as he was with the old. Job, unlike the captain, can accept another boy, or both boys and girls. The captain rejects all of this, quoting another scriptural passage. If I forget the old Jerusalem, this is Psalm 137. A psalm lamenting the Babylonian captivity. The loss of habitation in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's a, a, a psalm of, of displacement, geographical displacement. Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship, the city that Christ loved, is irreplaceable. As Elyosha explains to Kolya, quote, If I forget the O Jerusalem, Meaning, if I forget all that's most precious to me, if I exchange it for anything, may I be struck. I'm honestly not sure how to reconcile this moment with Zosima's. I wonder, is the captain still living under the glaring light of the rising sun? Is he not yet able to love the slanting rays of the setting sun as Zosima does? Will that tender resignation come with time? Perhaps but there is something so emotionally raw and authentic about this moment. Indeed, Kolya actually interrupts Alyosha's explanation of the verse. It says, quote, enough I understand, as if it's too much for him to bear. The love child is like the love city that cannot and even should not be forgotten. And to forget that city and to forget that child is to betray one's deepest self. So I think our hope in Kolya's future is balanced by the sorrow over the loss of, Elu of Ilyusha's future. Dostoevsky never really allows us to forget the reality of suffering, never really to forget the pain of children. I think we ever, there's never uh, an easy emotional flippancy that we can arrive at to say, ah, well, the uh, pain and suffering of the world is fine because we have the hope uh, in the conversion of Kolya and the hope that the world become, you know, the world that he will found or you know, whatever founding work he will do, somehow we'll, we'll make it, we'll make it better. We're never allowed to, I think, forget the, the pain and the loss. Uh, Perhaps to put it differently, right? Troy is complicated by Jerusalem. Troy and Jerusalem. Setting aside for a moment, <laughs> at least uh, Rome and Athens, these are two of the most important cities in the Western tradition. You have the great city of pagan mythology and the great city of Jewish, Jewish and Christian spirituality. Both cities fell. Troy to the Greeks, Jerusalem to the Romans, oh, and also to the Babylonians as well. Jerusalem fell a lot. Uh, both cities are dear to the gods. Both cities are, are founded. Those foundings are important to the very identity of those cities. I'm honestly not sure what to make of the fact that both cities appear in this book. 
Right? Is the progression from Troy to Jerusalem significant? Does Colia in some way need to move from Troy to Jerusalem? There is a glibness in his treatment of Troy that's lacking in his response to Jerusalem. He's proud, but also insecure about his knowledge of Troy. And his knowledge of Troy is, is tied up in this sort of very like, kind of modern archaeological uh, movements of peoples and you know, great questions about who has actually who has actually founded it, founded it, and this kind of almost maybe even a deflation of the of the mythical. He's, he's genuinely distressed by Jerusalem. He almost can't bear to hear talk of Jerusalem. So there's this, there's certainly an emotional shift in Colia uh, in his response to Troy and his response to Jerusalem. Does he as a, as a founder need to be disposed towards this, it's the city that he's founding? And whatever that actually means, I'm not sure that WCSC is saying that Colia is going to, to build a city, but maybe the city being this image of the work in the world that Colia is going to do. Does he need to have towards that work the disposition of Jerusalem rather than of Troy? This disposition, this sense that it's that it is there's a sacred and, and irreplaceable. Is this shift from Troy to Jerusalem another sign of the kind of founder that Koya will become?